Welcome back, dear listeners. This is Shark, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith, and welcome to session three in our creation seminar series. Now, this session is going to be really fun because it's actually going to start dealing with some of the problems with Darwinian evolution. As always, if you'd like to see the visuals that go along with this lesson, we are releasing the video recording of this lesson on our YouTube, Facebook, and Rumble channels. This program is supported by generous donors like you. If you would like to become a donor and help support this ministry and help keep this broadcast free, you can donate at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And with that, here is Michael in Radioactive Dating and Time, Problems for Darwinian Evolution. Well, good morning. Thanks for for coming in on a beautiful, sunny Saturday morning. This is Saturday, right? That's what I thought. I'm a little confused sometimes. But um, what we're going to be doing today is sort of picking up a little bit of what we talked about last night. I want to start off, though, with a story because we're talking about evidence that um, God is the creator. Primarily what I'm talking about as we uh, um, started this last night, many churches, many Christians, people who claim to be Christians or maybe Christians themselves, I don't doubt that, do not believe in the total inerrancy of the word of God. They don't. I just had a conversation, as I was saying last night, with a a Christian leader just uh, a couple of weeks ago who said that um, I asked, do you believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God? He says, yes. And I said, well, what do you think about creation? He says, ooh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, I don't know if I can believe that. Well, he just contradicted himself. Because, and I'm finding that so often. So many people say, oh, yes, I believe the Bible's the Word of God. It's inerrant. There's no problems in it. The original manuscript is accurate. Um, and I even do presentations on our website that we have for Evidence for Faith. we got a series you can download for free um, that I'm doing right now on science in the Bible, showing there's no science errors in the Bible. There's not one provable science error I've been able to come across, and I've asked many colleagues in my scientific community, show me one. And usually when they think they found one, I'm able to show them. A lot of times it's having to translate from the Hebrew into the English or the Greek into the English is where we come across some of the problems. But there is no provable scientific error. Well, so many people, so many Christians today, they say, I can't believe in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Why? Well, one argument that comes up frequently is, well, look how long, um, for all those stars, when you go out at nighttime and you see all the stars, it takes so much time for uh, the speed of light to get that light here. How do you explain that? Well, um, if you follow astrophysics and stuff, which I'm a biologist, this is not my field, but I've at least read enough to know that the speed of light, scientists now know, the speed of light has not always been constant. It is a constant now. But physics shows us that at some time in the past, they can't explain it, no one can explain this, but that the speed of light was at a different speed. It was variable at a certain point. Well, that would make perfect sense if God created the stars, like he says in Genesis, and had the light already onto the earth, as we talked about last night, that God created a young earth, um, already formed earth, everything. He already had trees with fruit on it when he created it. And when he did all this, this makes perfect sense that the, the speed of light had to be different at a certain point. So it's, it's logic. It's, it's logically sound, um, and we know from scientific fact that, we, as I said, we can't understand how this works, but the speed of light has not always been constant. 
But as we talk about Darwinian evolution, and because that's what's happened, a lot of uh, churches even are embracing Darwinian evolution. Now, they won't call it that because they'll call it theistic evolution. What it is is they're just saying God used Darwinian evolution to do the creation. And that those days of creation, as we talked about last night, all those days of creation represent different epochs of time, millions of years to billions of years. Um, and I'm going to show you today that's there's a lot of problems with that. Because Darwinian evolution is based upon two pillars. It's a temple of belief. Darwinian evolution, theistic evolution, if you will, is a belief system. It is a faith-based system. Oh, they'll say that there's science baking all this up. Yes, hypothetical science, assumptions, um, hypothetical statements, but sound facts, we don't have a lot of that. And what we do, it's constantly having to be rewritten. I don't know if you caught this, but just this week in the news, they are now saying that the Big Bang Theory could not possibly, this was not a Christian organization, science publication stated Big Bang does not explain the amount of time needed for our universe to form. Where Now, if they're so correct, how come they have to keep correcting their theory? There's a problem here. But they don't acknowledge that what they, um, as, a, as a problem. They just keep trying to, to add to the thing, and they're constantly changing. As a science teacher for many years in high school, we had to change science textbooks. Why do we have to change science textbooks? Because every five years, at least every five years, the school district that I was the chairman of in the science department, we changed these because there were errors in them. Science textbooks are full of errors. I can show you tons of errors in this, well, not tons, but many errors in this book. This is the number one bestseller at the time this came out. Uh, this is Miller Levine Biology. I've been using this throughout the presentation and will continue because it was the best-selling biology textbook in the public school system. There's problems in here. And so every few years, we would replace our textbooks. As a matter of fact, it's sort of a uh, I don't want to say a trade secret of education, particularly in science, by the time a public or a textbook is published and comes off the printing press, it's already obsolete because science is moving so quickly, we find out new things and there's errors in it. I had a student teacher one year who was teaching a unit um, for me. She was doing the teaching, and as I uh, was sitting and critiquing her on certain things in her lesson, it was on botany, I remember, and as she was explaining certain things, after the lesson was over and we met afterwards, I said, there was something you said that uh, is totally contrary. I don't think you got this right. And I opened up the textbook and I showed her what you said is totally contrary to this. And she says, oh, but this was a new discovery made last year, and I gave him the correct thing. And then she cited this to me, and I was like, holy cow, you're right. Well, that was the last year we used that book <laughs> because it was a major thing. So that's one of the problems. Science is constantly morphing and changing. I had a parent who called me up. Uh, this has happened twice, but this first time this happened, a parent called me up when I was working at Fort Wilderness Ministries, camp in the Northwoods up by Rhinelander. And then um, during the school year, this parent called me up and says, Michael, I need your help with my high school, my high school son. What's the problem? I just found his Bible in the trash can. Okay, what do you want me to do? Well, she says, I questioned him. She said, first of all, when I saw it, I thought maybe it got accidentally knocked in there. So I picked it up and I put it on the shelf back uh, on his desk. I came in the next day into his room. It's back in the trash can. Then I approached him, why is your Bible in the trash can? This is what he told me. He says, the Bible is not my God anymore. Science is my God. She says, how do I respond to that? What do I say? 
He said, science is truth. The Bible's not truth. How do I respond to this? I said, what you need to do is point out to your son, there is, there is not throughout entire human history any God that has to change constantly as much as the God science. Science is continuing morphing, changing, because it is always learning new things. It is never the same. It is the most unreliable God there possibly could be. That's where you got to approach this. That's science. Because science is the stuff that we teach today. Like if you take, I'm not making this up, they used to teach in major universities, if you take your dirty underwear, mix it with a handful of oats or grain, like wheat or something, throw it into the corner, uh, sprinkle a little water on it, give it enough time, it'll turn into mice. Right. Didn't anybody ever test this? <laughs> but there's things like this all the time. Darwinian evolution, how even Christians and churches many times will try to explain creation, is using this method. It's a, it's a belief based on two pillars. It's a temple on two pillars only. Sort of going back to the days of Samson. If Samson can push the pillars aside, even one of them, the temple will collapse. Same thing with Darwinian evolution. You remove one of the pillars, and one of the pillars is time, and that's what we're going to deal with this morning. If you remove that pillar, this entire theory falls apart. The second pillar is mutations. Random chance mutations adding new genetic information to the genome, which is the definition that you will find for Darwinian evolution. If you remove random chance mutations of adding new genetics, new genes into a genome, the entire theory falls apart. Any one of these theories, if anything starts to crumble that pillar, it collapses. And so um, what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to take that first pillar time. I'm going to show you their pillars collapsing. Then we're going to take a short break, and I'm going to come back and hit the random chance mutation and show you how that this morning, that'll be the second part this morning, um, how that pillar is also unfounded. And that one sort of gets a little humorous. But um, let's get into what this whole thing is. Now, when we come across, and well, let me just put it this way. Last night I showed this chart. This is the biological pathways chart. Um, it's a nightmare to many, many students, professors, teachers. Actually, I used to love this. I had a massive one of these in my wall in my lab when I used to teach um, microbiology and biotechnology. These are the chemical reactions occurring inside of a cell about every hundredth of a second to keep your cell alive. It is run by enzymes. Enzymes are little proteins in most cases that speed up reactions. This is showing how you can take um, if you ate a sugar cookie this morning or put sugar in your coffee or tea, um, there's an enzyme or there's a chemical here called suco sucrose, table sugar. Right below it, it'll show a little arrow with a little blue mark that says sucrase. Sucrase is an enzyme that breaks off sucrose and breaks it into two molecules. If you're familiar with sugars, sucrose, our table sugar, is a disaccharide, two sugars bonded together. Sucrase is an enzyme that instantly comes to it and unlocks the bond between them, and now you get a fructose and a glucose molecule, monosaccharides. Enzymes speed up reactions. There are tens of thousands, there's over a thousand enzymes on this chart. There are over 100,000 enzymes that don't fit on this chart that are necessary also. I had this in my lab, and um, I had one time three students came up to the thing. We were taking a break. They came up, and they looked at the chart. This, as I said last night, above the chart, I had written um, in very large letters, there is a God. This is a flow chart. Flow charts are only made by intelligence. 
This is a flow chart. It's like dominoes, setting up a dominoes thing. And the students went up to this chart and they're looking at it and they're saying, okay, I know this is metabolic pathways. You've talked about that. And, you know, they're, they're standing there just talking amongst themselves. So I walk over as they're eating cookies my wife had made. She used to do that for my classes. And it still does, in fact. And as I walked up to them, I was listening to them, and they're saying, man, look at this. Look, here's this molecule, and look how we get energy, ATP energy and all this stuff. They're just flowing through the whole thing. They're saying, wow, this is amazing. I come walking over, and I said, what exactly is this? I said, that's what's going on inside your cell every hundredth of a second to keep that cell alive and to give it energy so that it can actually function. And I said, see here, the cell's giving off carbon dioxide, which is what you're exhaling right now. And you're getting energy. ATP um, is the molecule for energy. And you see it forms these things. And they're like, oh my gosh. Well, one of the kids says, now I understand why you have on here there is a God, because this is all design. He says, I see the flow chart through the whole thing. By the way, none of these guys are Christians. Um, they're from a public school, and there's, they're like, this one says, there has to be a God. There's no way you can, this could happen by random chance. The other two, and I said, you got it. The other two said, no, if you give it enough time, all that can happen. I said, how much time? I don't know, a couple million years. Really? You can actually take all the parts, go to a junkyard, throw all the parts inside of a junkyard, stick a stick of dynamite in there. Where you're going to get the stick of dynamite right there is already the problem. But cause an explosion in that that's going to instantly, when all the parts fall down together, makes a 747 plane fully equipped with fuel and pass, um, pilots and stewardesses and stuff, and they're all going to fly out. You get enough time, you can have that happen. And one of the students said, yeah, I think so. I said, you got a lot more faith than I do. Time is one of the major problems that we see. Now, how do we date things? Any type of paper you pick up, any type of news broadcast, any type of article that talks about um, early Earth or whatever, what do we come across? It's a thing called radioactive dating, right? That's how we use it. Radioactive dating. Now, radioactivity and stuff was discovered, of course, by the Curies, Madame Curie and her husband, Pierre. They theorized and came up with an idea when they started learning, and she's dying of radium poisoning from her experiments, but she comes up with the idea of using half-lives as possibly being able to figure out dating on materials. Um, but she said, as a good scientist, Marie, though she was not a Christian, she was not a believer, Marie Curie was a good scientist, where she said, you have to use controls to test things. And if you use, now a lot of Christians, when, you hear, when I mention in presentations radioactive dating, they, uh, uh, stay away, stay away. You know, don't talk about that. That's bad stuff. No, radioactive dating is very good if you use it with controls. It's an experiment. Whenever you do experiments, I'm a teacher. We used to do experiments in class. You're going to set up an experiment. You've got to have a control. That's how the scientific method works. Curie said, it can be accurate if you have controls. Now, I don't remember off the top of my head the person who actually first invented radioactive dating, but what they meant it for, what it was originally designed for, was archaeology. For instance, here I have a first century oil lamp. Okay, actually, this is not an authentic one, but it's modeled off it. In Israel, you can go to stores, they pass these off as real, where actually it only costs like 50 cents. <laughs> They have little boys sitting in the back making these out of clay. Anyway, you find this in a layer where you see other potteries and stuff from the first century. We're going to say it's real. Okay, we take this out, and oh, look at this. The style, what do we know? Looking at the style of this lamp, okay, this is 
from Palestine. You can look at the type of clay it's made of, clay being organic. You can look at the clay and get an idea of roughly what clay that came from in Israel, the location. You can also study the art style to it. That suggests a certain time. The thickness of it gives us a certain time period. See, these are all control things that we know from testing from other archaeological sites. It's all standard information knowledge. It's, it's the bank that you base, uh, the rule that you base your control on. And sometimes you come across coins. Of course, coins have dates on them. So now we have a coin that has a date. We have the art style that has a date. We have uh, the thickness of the, this and how it was constructed as a date. We have these dates. Now we can use carbon-14 to test this. And when you carbon date something or any type of radioactive dating, what most people don't realize is you don't get one date. You get a series of possible dates whenever you radioactively date something. Well, which one's correct? Well, if we have controls, that coin's from the time of Pilate, we know it's during the time of Pilate. The artwork says it's from the first century around Jerusalem. Well, that gives us an idea there, too. If one of the dates comes out to be around 30 uh, A.D., that's probably the date. So we can disregard the date, was, which was like you know, 1,000 B.C. or um, 2 million B.C., because those don't fit this. Though you wouldn't get a 2 million B.C. with carbon-14 anyway. That's too old. Um, it, we could get 10,000 years. No, that would be wrong because it doesn't fit what the controls. Do you understand what the controls are? It's the artwork. It's the coin. Now, one of the dates on there might be 30 AD. That's the date that fits. So scientists would say this, this piece of pottery, if it was real, this piece of pottery would be dated back to about 30 AD. Even though we've got a whole pile of different dates, we have controls in here that we can test that idea against. That's the whole thing with doing controls. If I still haven't made this clear, let me give you another example. When I was teaching school um, in AP biology class, I would, on one of the first days of class, have a beaker sitting out with slips of paper in it. Each one of the pieces of paper that were in there, one for each student, had a plant hormone listed on the paper, a plant growing hormone. Students have no ideas because we haven't studied this yet. And they would reach in, pull one out, and I, after everybody got one, I said, now what's your what your um, assignment is for this semester is to tell me what that hormone does and prove it using an experiment. Well, one girl had one that was actually pretty simple. It was a um, somatrophin thing was supposed to make the plant grow fast. And so she um, did an experiment. What she did, she used marigolds, I remember. And so she planted marigolds. For a control to compare, she used one plant. And then she tested with one plant. She took one plant, she didn't do anything, just put it in ordinary potting soil, let it grow, the seed all the way up. The other one she put here, and then she just mixed up one dose of something. She had no idea what the concentration, she just put a concentration on there. She didn't put enough of anything because both plants grew exactly the same. So she says this plant hormone does nothing. No, it does something. You only tested with one plant, and you only have one as a control. So as we sat and we talked, and she couldn't understand why she got a, a, not a very good grade on this, I let her redo it, but I said, you have to use controls. And she talked with others in the class. We all talked about it. She said, others were using, well, I've got 50 plants as my control. I'm using 100 plants as my control. Yeah, that's what you do, because you got to get a good average. And then you just don't test one. You test different doses of it as you research what this thing does. Well, that's how it's supposed to be done. But 
what happens is people just take a date and they come up with something. For instance, if I took this rock, this ordinary rock here, this is up from Lake Superior, type of sandstone. If I was to test this with radioactive dating, now this is not organic, so I cannot use carbon-14. Carbon-14 is for something that was living. So carbon-14 is not going to work. But there's many other methods we can use. We could use uh, possibly uranium lead. We could use potassium. Um, uh, potassiums. We could use strontium. We could use uh, helium, arcos. I mean, there's a bunch of different radioactive tests that we can run on this. Now, what's, this, is, this is what you never hear on the Discovery Channel. Say we take this and we run uh, an argon potassium test on it. We get a series of dates, maybe 10 dates, on the possible age of this rock. Now, if I have a theory that I think this rock falls into, that I think this rock came from here, I pick the date from my paper I'm writing, I pick the one date that fits that. The rest of them I discard. I just proved, using radioactive dating, that this rock is that old. Do you see how this works? What, if I could do this with any artifact, I come up with an idea of what I think is the correct date. In my hypothesis, I run tests until I find one of the tests that fits my hypothesis. Often I don't change my hypothesis because I've banked my whole career and my funding of my research on that. So I'm looking for that date. Uh, when they found the Lucy skull in, in Africa, Ken Johansson, the guy, Ken, or Dr. Johansson, I can't think of his first name, um, when he found it, and, and others who have found things like this, they have sometimes had to take these skulls and these bones to different labs because the labs don't give them the date that fits their hypothesis. Do you know that for the early Lucy skull, it was tested by 16 different independent labs until they finally found one that fit the theory of about 4.5 million years? They weren't, they weren't getting the dates they needed, so they kept testing. Well, I can't be right. Give it to another lab. No, I can't be right. Take it to another lab. They, this kind of thing happens. Leakey did the same thing uh, with his discoveries. And you keep using the stuff. You keep testing till finally you get a certain date. Now, what's fascinating to me, I know this is called selective dating. And to be honest, I'm guilty of the same thing. When I was working in the field of fisheries genetics, and trying to prove the evolution of a fish, um, I did the same thing. I did all sorts of DNA testing and protein testing, isozymes and stuff, uh, using gel electrophoresis to try and show how this fish evolved uh, in this way. And most of my data was saying I was not correct. And I was frustrated and I was told by my senior scientists, you only pick the data that supports your paper. That's what you publish with. The rest of the stuff you just ignore, you never mention it. I said, that's selective dating. If my students did that, I would fail them. That's how you do this, Michael. Do you want to get published or perish? If I test this rock right here, potassium argon, we're going to get a set of dates. Now, we test the same rock, strontium chloride, another radioactive dating method. We're going to get a bunch of dates. None of them are going to overlap. Very unlikely any of them will overlap. Test it with uranium lead. We're going to get dates. They're not going to overlap. Wouldn't you think that if this rock was 2.8 billion years old, that every one of the tests would show this? It doesn't. But they will never mention that on the news. They will never mention that in their papers. They only give you the data that they want you to hear that supports their theory. That's a strong accusation, but I can make it because I did the same thing. That's how this works. There's problems with radioactive dating. I've just shown you that it's based upon bias of the hypothesis of the, the researcher. 
it is like that. Now, it can be, please, please understand, radioactive dating can be very accurate if you have controls. If you have controls. If you have a coin in something, you've got a control. Radioactive dating may say that this is 30 AD is one of the dates. We have a coin here, 30 AD. This fits. That is most likely the actual date. So that's why you have to use controls. The, the uh, Curie said, without controls, you could be millions of years off. And it, they are. You think radioactive dating is accurate? Well, let me show you some problems with radioactive dating. First of all, scientists often get c conflicting dates using different radioactive dating methods, as I just mentioned. Obviously, this thing from this test, if it says it's 2 billion years old, this one says it's only 300,000 years old, they both can't be correct. So which one are you going to test, or which one are you going to publish? You're going to publish the one that best fits your paper. That's how this is done. So there is a problem right there. Second, sometimes rocks that are thought to be much older than other rocks, because they're deeper in sediment, so they're older, are sometimes on top of the ones that are younger, by several hundred meters in cases. How do you explain it? Well, they come up and they say, well, uh, the whole plate tectonics and things all shifted around. Has anybody ever seen this happen? No. Well, how do we know it happened? Well, look, there it is. What evidence do you have? Well, the older one is on, uh, on the top and the younger one's on the bottom, so it had to be shifted. There's my evidence. Show me how that happens. Have you ever seen, I wish I had put a slide of this on here. Have you ever seen out west they've got these rock sediment layers that curve dramatically like this? And they say it's because of the uh, plate tectonics, the plates crushing together and moving. Have you ever, ever witnessed or ever seen anybody who's ever witnessed two massive rocks, two like large pieces of, of uh, marble or some other type of rock coming together and actually bend like that? They crumble. They don't bend. What bends like that? Why would you get that? If there was a massive flood causing the sedimentation to be buried in certain levels, that would cause that. Well, that suggests Noah's flood. Oh, but we can't go there. That's a myth. Third, often rocks are known to be very young because they come from recent volcanoes. Mount St. Helens. I think almost most of us in this room, there's a few that won't, most of us in this room remember Mount St. Helens blowing. They have tested rocks from there. You wouldn't believe some of the dates that they gave for that volcano when they radioactively tested it. Um, definitely wrong. I'll show you some of this stuff here. Um, let me show you one volcano here. In Arizona, the Sunset Crater, we know that it basically formed probably around 900 years ago, and that's using some historical Indian lore with this. But when you test it, the dates with radioactive dating that they publish, it's between two, uh, 210,000 to 230,000 years ago. Actually, it was just not even 1,000 years ago. In New Zealand, just 300 years ago, there's actual documentation on this one that this, um, this mountain erupted just 300 years ago. The rocks from this tell us that the, uh, they came from there, that it was 485,000 years ago is when these, this volcano erupted. Been to Hawaii? Seen the volcanoes in Hawaii? They've been erupting for the last 200 years. You can go there, it's a, science, it's a tourist thing to go watch it. Yet they have taken rocks right out of there, forming right out of the earth, taken it to the labs, and they've been tested to be 140 million years old to 2.96 billion years old. Something's wrong. It doesn't take a genius to figure out these numbers are not lining up. I mean, if the, if the volcano happened 200 years ago, or even just happened 
two weeks ago and we take a lava sample, there's no way this thing can be proven to, to be uh, a million years old. It doesn't work. We, we watched the rock form. And this has been done many times. In 1993, several pieces of wood, organic wood, found entombed in a lava flow of a coal mine in Australia. Parts of the wood were still intact, though encased in lava. So wood inside of a block of lava. They opened it up, and they carbon tested the wood. The wood came out to be 35,000 to 45,000 years old. Yet the lava on the outside turned out to be around uh, 36.7 to 1.2 million years old. How can that be? How could the yolk be millions of years older than the stuff that's on the outside? It doesn't make sense. But there you go. Another one. Rock cooled from lava flows known to have occurred between 1949 and 1975. They sent them to different labs to be tested without informing them where these things came from, just letting the test be totally unbiased. And though the, the formation of uh, these uh, rocks were formed within 100 years, the testing they used potassium argon resulted in anywhere from just less than 2.7 uh, or 0.27 million years old to 3.5 million years old. Something's wrong with this. Oh, this gets a little funny as goes on. As I mentioned, Mount St. Helens, when Mount St. Helens blew, some of us watched it on television. We remember. Did you guys know that they tested these things using potassium argon and some of the dates came out to be as, uh, as old as 2.8 million years old? Really? I'm that old? No wonder I'm achy and hurt. I watched it happen. <laughs> there are some classic ones that are almost just downright funny. And by the way, I want you to look at the publications that I have for this. This is out of science. This is not a Christian publication. This is a very prestigious uh, periodical in the scientific community. Living mollusks were carbon dated and found to be, we're talking snails like, found to be 2,300 years old. No snail lives that long. <laughs> Some people can't keep them alive for a, a week in an aquarium. <laughs> 2,300 years old. This one, our IT person just started laughing when she was forming the slide for me. She says, are you kidding? This is real? Yeah, it's in the Antarctic Journal uh, back in 1971. They were talking about this freshly killed seal. And um, when they did carbon dating on it, it came out to be 1,300 years old. Really? Uh-huh. Shells in living snails carbon dated to be 27,000 years old. That's, again, out of a science publication. Right. This is my favorite. In um, Siberia, they have these mammoths that have been locked in ice and frozen in ice, some of them standing up with food in their mouth. Well, they took one of these, the Volosvich mammoth, and they carbon dated it. And they carbon dated tissues from, from different parts. It's just not the, the skeleton. There's muscle, because it's in ice, there's muscle tissue and stuff. The Romans used to go up there and harvest the, um, the ivory out of these things. When they carbon dated this one mammoth, they took some cells from one end and they dated it. It came out to be about 29,500 years old. When they tested the back end, the posterior of the animal, it came out to be 44,000 years old. <laughs> that thing really had a long birth. <laughs> Gee, that mom must have really been in agony for like 10,000, over 10,000 years giving birth to this thing. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's just, that's crazy. Um, or how about the Grand Canyon? 
We come up with the age of the Grand Canyon based upon a guy, and I'll talk about him this afternoon. His name was James Hutton, lived in the 1700s. He was a deist. He believed that there was a God, but God created everything, just poof, there it is, and then he just left and walked away. And let it basically, evolutionists use this, then uh, theistic evolutionists, then God could let everything just evolve. Well, he came up with the idea that the Grand Canyon is so many millions of years old because erosion, we know the rates of erosion today, so if we see the layers, it takes so long to form layers, that's how we come up with the dates for the Grand Canyon. And this is a theory called uniformity. I'm going to talk about it in more detail um, this afternoon. But uniformity is something that we are totally, uh, we, we are indoctrinated with this and we don't even see it. We're going to show a short little clip here of one of my favorite cartoons that describes this whole idea of what Hutton said. What happens is, the, he said, the actions that we see of erosion and weathering are the keys to understanding how old the past is. You get that? The key of the presence, things happening in erosion in the present, tell us how old things are from the past. Watch the Flintstones. We've been traveling for four days now. We should be getting close to the ranch. Yeah, we'll be there in a few hours. Hey, Fred, Fred, uh, look at that sign up ahead. Boy, the Grand Canyon. That's one of nature's wonders. Let's take a look. So that's the Grand Canyon, huh? That's it. Well, doesn't look like much to me. Not now, but they expect it to be a big thing someday. That's James Hutton. That is his whole idea, that the key to understanding the present is to look at erosion rates and stuff from the past. It doesn't work like that. This can easily be explained, which I'll talk about later, by a massive worldwide flood and water flooding very quickly from the central part of the United States. If you've ever been around Wyoming, I drove through with my family on vacation a few years ago through Wyoming going up into South Dakota and stuff. I was amazed at one point, they were all asleep in the car. Um, but at one point, I'm just looking around and I could see mountain range going all the way around into flat plain. And I'm sitting here thinking, my gosh, this is a seabed. And then looking over to this side, to the left, to the west, I can see a break through it. And I know enough geography to realize this water that was here broke through at this area and caused a massive rush. Can't help but think it formed canyons like this doesn't take millions of years, and I'm going to prove that to you in just a second here with this. Now, what do theistic evolutionists do in trying to figure out this stuff? How do they come up with that, that God used millions of years to create the earth? How do they do this? Well, unfortunately, and as I've gotten into arguments and stuff, I hate to say arguments, maybe heated discussions might be better, um, with Christians on this, they say it says in the Bible they back up this whole thing that the earth is billions of years old by using this verse. Look what it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, and I'm taking this out of the English Standard Version, which is a word-for-word -word translation. And this is what I've been quoted so many times, them people quoting back to me. They say, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. All things are beginning are continuing, I'm sorry. All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They said, you see right here, it says in the Bible, James Hutton is right. 
the, what's going on today. We can find out about what happened in the past just by studying erosion rates and stuff. They're, they're continuing in the same rate. Well, first of all, you've already taken God out of the equation because you've taken God out of the box. We've just got rid of the whole flood idea. We're not accepting the flood, period. So churches and stuff, and this is sometimes preached from the pulpit, sadly, that some pastors are pushing this, this weird idea off um, that Hutton was right with this, and Hutton's ideas of what helped form Darwinian evolution. Darwinian evolution needed Hutton because you needed millions of years to do this. Remember, this is one of the main pillars. You've got to have a lot of time to make that chart that I was showing you at the beginning to give time for all these mutations to form. You need billions of years and stuff. So here's their verse that they often use. You ever hear of taking a verse out of context? This verse is in the middle of a paragraph. Let's look a little bit bigger at this paragraph. What is God actually saying? Same passage, God says here that uniformity doesn't occur. Hutton's not correct. But we pull that one verse out because this is what it says. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers, unbelievers, will come in the last days, are we not there? With scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say what? Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Isn't it amazing that when churches, pastors and stuff, and Christians quote this verse in support of theistic evolution and Darwinian evolution, they are fulfilling a prophecy what non-believers will be saying and what people will be saying to discount God. They're fulfilling this prophecy. Yeah, get them to see that. Talk about taking a verse out of context. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, that the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the word of God. As we said last night, that goes against the order of Darwinian evolution. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. There's the flood. They said there was no flood. In the same paragraph, we're still in the same paragraph. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the godly. There's your paragraph. They take one verse out of the middle of the paragraph and build Hutton's theory with this to support this whole idea of this. They don't take a look at the whole paragraph. It's amazing that this is going on, that this is happening to us today, and we're watching this all unfold. This leads to another scientific problem. How do you test time? How do you test it? You can't. As I stated at the beginning of this session today, scientists have already figured out the speed of light has not always been constant in the universe. We know that. Can't explain it, but we know it by the movement of stars and stuff. Can't be explained. The speed of light has, is not a constant. It is a constant now. But in the past, it obviously couldn't have been. So we have to do what? You've got to base your opinions on assumptions or you're going to submit to God. You're going to go one on the other. There's no fence sitting here. You're either falling into theistic evolution, Darwinian evolution, or you're going to believe what the Word of God says. Because God and evolution, they don't go together like that. After the work of Hutton, as I was describing, and Charles Darwin, who we'll talk more about, uh, later on, when they published their works, and Darwin published his Origin of the Species and other things, scientists constructed a thing called the geologic time scale. 
I'm sure you have all seen it because it's in every single biology book. They put this in every book and geology book. They show different layers of time that the way that they, <coughs> quote, should, unquote, be found in those layers, what fossils should be there. Um, here's a picture from one textbook showing the time scale. See this? I'm sure most of you are familiar with something like this from a biology textbook or a geology one. It's found in every one of the textbooks. Usually it's under the cover or it's in the appendix in the back. They'll have this or sometimes embedded in the text or in all three. What they do is they seem to find fossils in these different layers, and then they try to say, well, this layer is like 4.5 billion years old. Here's, here's a dinosaur thing, uh, 68.5 billion years old, or million years old. So they go through these things trying to use this. Um, and the fossils that have been stated to be from one layer, or they don't tell you this, are often found in other layers. You never hear this, or I shouldn't say never. You seldom hear this. I just read a paper um, this past week in prepping for this where I found a paper that actually stated that they have found another fossil of, of um, one, uh, one type of creature eating a bird. Well, if you follow Jurassic Park and all their thinking, the dinosaurs evolved from birds. Well, there's a lot of scientists now who have proved that couldn't have taken place because you can find bird feathers and bird fossils predating dinosaurs. But they don't tell you that in Jurassic Park. But here's one showing a dinosaur eating a bird. That dinosaur fossils are, it should be the birds came way after the dinosaurs. This is reversed. But they don't tell you that too often. Uh, they don't like to say that because it messes up their whole theory. Some fossils like trees have been found standing totally vertical. Have you ever seen those? Classic pictures, huge trees standing in solid rock and different layers, just like you have the different boards here representing different eras of time. Matter of fact, I even saw a picture one time. I'm not sure where this is from. That's why I don't use it. It was part of a whale the fossilized remains of a whale. It was vertical. It's in Ohio? Yeah, it's vertical through different layers. How did that thing die? <laughs> Talk about a long, prolonged death. Gee. But yeah, that one's, that's, I've, I've looked hard for that. And I, if you can give me the source where that's at, I would love to put that in a presentation if I can do it. I'd even buy that picture because that is amazing. But, oh, by the way, do you know the only place on earth where you find this? in that order? There is one place. Because any place you go on the planet, you look for this order, you're not going to find it. There is one place. I have it with me. The only place you're going to find that perfect order is in the books. Every other place you're going to go, it's mixed up somehow. But that's their ideal. Today, we have these things up on um, television, TVs, watching events. This is the area around Mount St. Helens today. Back in the 1970s, before it blew, this was all a lush forest, gorgeous forest, reminiscent in some cases of what you've seen in northern Wisconsin and stuff. Trees everywhere, lakes everywhere, beautiful. After the volcano exploded, look at the canyons. Now, not knowing that this is Mount St. Helens, because I told you that, how many of you would have thought that this must have taken a couple of million years to form all these different layers. I mean, this looks exactly like the Grand Canyon. Um, you can even see a river going through the bottom of this thing. looks like it, and it is several hundreds of meters high. This looks like this took millions of years. No, this all happened in just a few weeks because of a catastrophe. The Bible teaches catastrophism, that catastrophes cause major developments and major shapes of the earth. Noah's flood was a 
was a catastrophe. Or today, we have pictures of Mars, right? That's on the news, all these new pictures of Mars. Do you know that all scientists now basically agree that Mars had a global flood? It's in the news every week. There's pictures new coming out from different countries with satellites and, and imagery at Mars, and they're showing how Mars had a global flood. There's no water there, but Mars had a global flood. The evidence of it, how did they get it? Because of the canyons forming and, and um, sedimentation, it looks like, as a riverbed. So they say Mars had a global flood. Yet these same scientists denied that Earth ever did. Don't we have canyons? Don't we have sedimentation? Now, how many of you, when I started talking about this, looking at this picture, thought that's one of the pictures of Mars? It's not. That's Mount St. Helens again. That took just weeks to form. The point is, I'm trying to show you, there's a problem with time. Whenever any scientific publication, any news broadcast, anything comes out and they talk about billions of years or millions of years or some fossil that's been found or, or whatever, and they start to cite the years on this thing, I'm always right there skeptical because how in the world did they do it? I proved to you that scientific dating of radioactive methods without controls is unreliable. As the Curie said it would be, it's unreliable. You have to have controls. With controls in archeology, span it's very accurate. We use this often in archaeology because we have controls, artwork, styles, paintings, ink compositions, all sorts of stuff, a pottery and things that will tell us. Sometimes even names will appear. We know the dates of stuff that we can then test it with carbon-14 and verify, yep, we're at the right period of time. With controls, it's accurate. Without, you can be millions of years off, which is what I've showed you. Layers like this, this is again from Mount St. Helens. Look at the guy standing there. It's amazing to us, but that happened in just a short period of a couple of weeks. So there's the first problem. The pillar of Darwinian evolution is starting to have problems because the pillar of time has a problem with it. And that's where we're at with this session. We're gonna take a short break, come back in about five minutes, give you a chance to stand up, and probably a lot of people drink coffee this morning, um, might need to do some biological function. And so, <laughs> but we'll take a short little break here and we'll come back and we'll attack the second pillar mutation. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.